Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Lugo Journey Podcast. Today, I have Ferris Vakori, who is a physical therapist at the Kessler Institute, and he deals with paraplegics who are, you know, what we would describe as physically suffering. Paraplegics, people who've gone through seizures, neurochemical problems, but at the same time, they have been able to overcome all of these problems and still thrive mentally. So he has just uh, written a book that's coming out in two weeks called The Happiness Perspective. And I want to dig in deeper to Ferris Rikori to figure out what is the difference between the people who thrive mentally and the people who don't, who really suffer, right? Even though they're suffering the most physical ailments. So Ferris Rikori, it's great having you on. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I'm excited to chat a little bit about this and sort of, um, I would love to, at least give you a little bit of a backdrop of sort of where I, um, why I decided to write this book quickly. So um, like you mentioned, I'm a physical therapist. I was involved with sports my whole life, played soccer my whole life. Um, And then once I graduated, I went to Villanova University for my undergrad work. I was a psychology major. And then probably my sophomore year of college, I figured out I wanted to do physical therapy, just having been injured um, and having gone to physical therapy myself. And um, once I figured out I wanted to do physical therapy, I just took all the prerequisites to then apply to physical therapy school. I ended up going to PT school, physical therapy school at Rutgers University. And it's a three-year program. I graduated in 2012 with my doctorate in physical therapy. And I've been working at Kessler Institute since. Um, And I really got into the profession thinking I wanted to work with athletes, being involved with sports my whole life. Throughout your three years of PT school, you do rotations in different settings. And I did one at the current hospital I'm at now. And I worked with all individuals who have had neurological injuries, which you alluded to a little bit. So I treat individuals who, who have had some pretty life-changing injuries like stroke, brain injury, spinal cord injury, um, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's. So anything affecting the brain and spinal cord. And I've been there ever since. And Interesting. yeah, so it's it's been a fun journey so far and I started the journey of writing my book about a year ago so I'm almost there finish line is right there so tell me what inspired you you know so you know most people are doctors people who work for all these patients you know what inspired you especially you know maybe it's because you have a psychology background maybe because it just you know you you notice the people around you what inspired you to actually write the happiness perspective Yeah. I mean, just dealing and treating this individual, these individuals, this patient population was a lot for me emotionally and mentally, Um, especially the patients who were more closer to my age. Um, These young individuals who were having strokes and brain injuries, and it was just a lot for me to handle, honestly. And, you know, I got into the profession thinking I would be able to, you know, leave work, not think about my patients, but I just found myself thinking about them all the time. So about three or four years into my career, I started journaling and writing things down just to get things out of my head, um, which was very cathartic for me. And then fast forward eight years, I ended up meeting one of my patients. She graduated from Georgetown University. And then a couple months after she graduated, she ended up having a stroke herself. Mm -hmm. And she sort of chronicled her journey and her recovery um, in writing a book and with a lot of my patients, I develop relationships with them. I communicate with them um, pretty pretty frequently um, while we're in therapy going through their, their rehab. And she sort of was a catalyst for me taking, for me wanting to write my book. She said, why don't you write a book? I was like, I can't write a book. I don't, <laughs> what are you talking about? So she's the one that said, you know, 
I think you should really do it. You have a lot of, you know, powerful messages that a lot of people would love to hear. So she was the reason why I started this journey. And, you know, I do owe it all to her. I enjoy writing, but I never in a million years thought I would be able to write a book. Um, well, so, yeah. The, yeah, I mean, the reason I love you, I love your book. And <laughs> the reason why I love, you know, especially this topic in general is because, you know, we could take a look at these <clears throat> people who are suffering from neurochemical problems and, you know, all these, all these major ailments. But at the same time, we could take their lessons and apply it to all aspects of our life. Like this is not some, some, you know, uh, chronicle of people who are struggling outside of our world. It's like, no, they are the, they have the same human psychology. They might Absolutely. be suffering from, you know, you know, I think um, we all hear stories of, you know, heroes who are, you know, suffering from para, uh, paraplegic um, ailments who have amputees, but still are so mentally sharp and are mentally thriving. So I definitely did want to dive right into it. What is the difference, especially for everybody, not only for the paraplegics, that uh, is the difference between those who thrive mentally and those who just physically suffer and cannot handle the suffering of reality. Yeah, I mean, the, I think it's important to, to mention that um, the things I talk about and the lessons I talk about um, really transcend physical rehab and are applicable to our daily mindsets, the daily struggles that we all go through. We all have them. They're all there. They're all real. So I, I've noticed four things specifically that have helped my patients in their recovery unlock their happiness. The first one is turning their apathy into altruism. Um, the second is having moments of weakness, but not letting it turn into um, a mindset of weakness. The third thing is turning their grief into gratitude. And then the last thing, the fourth thing is um, this concept of the process versus the final product. And I talk a lot about each one of those. I impact those a lot in, the, in each chapter, but apathy into altruism really quickly. People, when they first That's have the their, in, yeah, people, when they first have their injuries, they're very apathetic. They lose interest in life. They don't feel like they have a purpose. They're a burden to their loved ones. The moment they're able to turn that apathy into altruism, getting involved with support groups, talking to other people, building connections with people, um, other people, I've noticed my patients that has helped them tremendously in unlocking their happiness. And then the second thing I mentioned is having those moments of weakness. We all have them. You can't be perfect every single day. Um, it's a process. It's a journey. Um, and having those moments of weakness is okay as long as we don't let it spiral and snowball into a mindset where you're stuck um, in that negative state. So that's the second thing. Um, and then process versus product, focusing on the process versus the final product of things. Specifically, obviously the framework is physical rehab medicine that I talk about. My patients, the first thing they ask me is when will I be able to do things like I used to do? And I feel like once they turn their attention to the past or too far to the future, that sort of elicits some sort of stress response, anxiety response, where they lose sight of the process and the small gains that they are able to make on a day-to-day -day basis. And then the last thing I mentioned is grief into gratitude. My patients, when they come to therapy, it's a pretty busy gym where I work. So as soon as they see other people going through something much worse than they're going through. Um, and a, for example, like a, a stroke, sometimes a stroke is not a stroke and it's not a stroke. Every stroke is different. It all depends on what part of the brain was affected. So sometimes individuals will have problems with, you know, just moving their arm. Their arm is just paralyzed. 
when they come into the gym, they see people who've had strokes where their arm and their leg is paralyzed and the patient can barely even stand up or sit up. So once they sort of can turn their grief into gratitude and sort of have those um, opportunities to be grateful, those are the four things that I highlight in my book to, and I've noticed help my patients unlock their happiness and recovery. It's funny because like all, all everything that you're talking about. So turning apathy into altruism, grief into gratitude, uh, focusing on the process versus the product and also mm-hmm. accepting those moments of weakness, but not turning it into a mindset. Those four things I have noticed along my journey too. And it's, it's absolutely incredible. You know, I think one of the biggest, um, one of the biggest struggles for people, you know, most of my, my listeners are people who are young and pursuing a goal, right? They're pursuing some valuable goal, you know, people in college, people who are, uh, you know, 20 years old, 30 years old, and they have something to pursue that is meaningful, you know, whether it be a career, whether it be a family, whether it be, you know, anything of that sort. And, um, and it's funny because I find that the thing that really pushes people to fail is focusing on the process versus the product uh, on the, on the product versus the process. Right. 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 I actually, um, <laughs> it was funny. I started doing a morning workout, for example. Right. And I think, you know, people don't work out because they start working out and then it gets boring a little bit. And then you don't see as much results right away. And I'm sure it's the same thing with paraplegics. They don't see the results right away, you know? And, um, what I started to do, and I find, I find this to be incredibly beneficial. Like I've been working out in the morning now for a hundred plus days, you know, straight. And, um, and that's the thing. I was never able to do that. But what changed was I actually worked out. I did a five minute workout. It's nothing, nothing crazy, right? I'm not looking for gains. And I made sure not to work out my abs or my biceps. I made, I made it purpose you know, purposefully, because I wanted to focus on the process. I didn't want to focus on making my biceps big. Right, right. Where we all, yeah. <laughs> right, right. And I think, I think that's a valuable lesson to really focus on the process. Versus yeah. The and it's, it's not about recovery in a sense where people are getting back to a hundred percent because the, the reality of the environment I'm in and the, the patients I treat, you look at someone who I interviewed and I think you, um, I know you had the opportunity to chat with too, someone like Eric Legrand, he had a spinal cord injury. And depending on the level of the spine that's that's, um, impacted dictates the extent of the the paralysis. So his was pretty high up. He had a C3, C4. And that just means like very high up in the neck. So and it was a complete spinal cord injury, meaning his whole spinal cord was severed. So he's paralyzed from his neck down, but he rolls into the gym. And he's honestly the happiest person I've probably ever met. And, you know, a lot of my patients are like that. A lot of my patients exhibit that happiness. So it's not the individuals who make the best recovery physically. It's more about the mindset during their recovery that has helped them unlock their happiness. That's something I wanted to tackle a little bit and um, talk about in my book. So yeah, I mean, doesn't that make us all feel like crap, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, like there is some, like we have all these things to complain about in our lives, yep. like, especially now, you know, it's 2020, we've reached the end, you know, politics, you know, we could always talk about politics, we could always talk about coronavirus, there are all these things that we could really complain about, but at the same time, it's like people have cut off, you know, Eric Legrand has no access to anything below his shoulders, yeah. But at the same time, he is as happy as a bean. And it's like, why, 
do we, you know, focus on the little sufferings of the day? Why do we really, you know, why do we choose, um, why do we not choose gratitude and why do we choose grief? You know, mm. that's, that's your rule too. It's like, yeah. why do we not focus on the most important things? And I think it's how we frame things. And it, it's important to recognize that those, I think those small day-to-day challenges that we all go through, not to downplay them because they're real. They're, they produce anxiety, stress, yeah. but is it really that bad? A and B, I think the way we look at things and the way we frame things can help set us up um, to over, not overcome, but deal with those day-to-day struggles. And one of the things I talk about, one of the chapters is happiness, of course. That's the framework that I talk about. And happiness as, as being, the way I like to think of it is as a muscle. We have over mm-hmm. 600 muscles in our body. Um, going through my PT work, I learned the ins and outs of all the muscles in our body. I, and I argue in my book that we my PT program failed to teach me about the most important muscle, which is our happiness mm-hmm. muscle. And like all, uh, like all other muscles in our body, they like to sort of grow, stretch. They need good hydration. And the more we're able to feed our happiness muscle with different things, I think it helps us flex our happiness muscle a little bit, a little bit more. And just like regular muscles, you want to get stronger with your biceps, for example, which is probably the number one thing most of us will target um, in our abs, like you mentioned. Um, to get them stronger, you obviously have to do some strength training, but if you don't, then they atrophy, they get weaker and you don't have the, that muscle tone that you're looking for. So if we don't work our happiness muscle, I think it gets weaker. And I don't think happiness is a final destination. I think it's a, I think it's a journey. And the more we're able to feed our happiness muscle, the more conditioned it will be and we can be happier and sustain that happiness at higher levels for a little bit longer. Yeah, there was a, I I mean, I think what you're really talking about is, you know, there are so many ways that you could look at this, but from a neurobiology perspective or from a psychology perspective, that holds true. You know, it's Mm. like, um, it's like our habits, right? If you have a habit of being negative, now, if you have a, if then your brain is wiring itself to always looking at the negatives, always, it's always looking at the negatives. You're always trying to look for things to complain about things to struggle with. And then you become a negative person. And I think we've all dealt with those people who always see life with a glass half, uh, half empty, but at the same time, the happiness muscle can be trained. You know, this, this, I guess, yeah, this habit can be, can be trained to really look at the life at life in a positive way to really view the world from a glass half full, you know, to really see it as a better place than, um, then the pessimist would look at it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things I talk about in my book is uh, there's a, I really tapped into the psychology and leverage my psychology education. It's crazy how like it took me a couple of years to really want to do that. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's so paramount in like treating the patients I treat oftentimes just being an ear to, you know, these, my patients to talk to and listen to. I see my patients two, three, four times a week at an hour at a time. So they're confiding in me a lot. I develop relationships with them and just the power of the mind is really, really important and how it impacts our bodies, our mindset, how it impacts our bodies physically. And there's studies to suggest that the whole mind body paradigm and what we think and how we think really impacts our body physically. And I think the more we're able to control our minds, which is not easy. It's something that takes time, practice and intention to be able to do that. But the more we're able to do that, I think it's 
it helps set us up nicely for feeding our happiness muscle and really focusing on the important things in life. And um, it's, it's not easy at all, but it's something that's possible. Yeah. Well, so actually you have, I, I think you, you know, you brought up an interesting point where, you know, you are, you are, you have your boots on the ground. You are literally dealing with these people all the time. You are dealing with patients coming in and out and you see them go through their own journey, you know, like, mm -hmm. uh, first of all, I have two questions. So first, yeah. Do you watch them like once they start going into rehab? Are you the guy that you know they see first, or are you the institute that they see first? And then also give me a great story, or give me you know a a great way of understanding. Yes, what the journey looks like and what the psychology of the people actually is. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's important, and I one of my goals of the book is to educate people on healthcare, the healthcare system a little bit, and like the progression of what happens when someone has a stroke. I think empowering my patients is something I really take pride in and giving them the information. So I mentioned earlier that I'm in the outpatient setting. So if you think about someone, I'll give you an example, someone who say loses a leg, whether it's because of an accident or diabetes or vascular disease, those are the top three reasons why someone will lose a leg. So if someone loses a leg, they go to the hospital, they lose their leg, they're typically in the hospital for three or four days and they need to get medically stable, make sure there's no major infection, make sure the surgery went well, um, their blood work is good, all that stuff. Once that happens, they are then transferred to most likely an acute rehab hospital. So that means that a patient will go to acute rehab hospital. They're pretty medically stable, but they, they need to learn how to now transfer meaning going from their bed to their wheelchair because now they don't have a leg. So they have to learn how to move around and get functionally independent to be able to do things by themselves. Their whole life is now has turned upside down. It's changed. So they have to learn how to do these things. So typically they will go to the acute rehab hospital. They'll, they're still staying in the hospital, but they're getting pretty intense therapy while they're in the hospital. After that, the patient will then either go home or go to a subacute facility where um, a subacute facility is just not as intense therapy. And I highlight all this in my books. I think it's important for people to know this who are going through this. Yeah. If, they go, if they go home, then now they're in their wheelchair, most likely if you lost a leg, because their leg has to heal until they get their prosthesis, their fake leg to learn how to use it. Once okay. it heals, usually it's like two or three months after surgery. So by the time I see them in outpatient, they're pretty far along in their journey of recovery. They're probably two, three, four months in. So I'm not the first line of defense um, in terms of their rehab. They typically will see me months later, probably two or three months after their initial injury. And the same is true for a stroke or brain injury. Oftentimes hospital, a subacute rehab facility, and then outpatient. So I see them a little further along and I'm usually the last stop in their recovery. So by this time, reality is sort of sitting in, setting in for them. They're home. They, they sort of know that after outpatient therapy, there's not really much, much else after. So that's why I really take pride in empowering my patients, trying to get them to buy into living a little bit of a healthier lifestyle, doing exercises on their own, because therapy is not forever. And that's the hardest conversation I have with my patients is like that discharge discussion. Okay, we've sort of reached our goals we have to stop therapy. You have to go out into the real world and you're on your own now. So they're trying to figure out their new normal. And I think 
um, psychologically, that's, that's pretty tough to do. And that's why I think for me as a physical therapist, um, it's part of what I have to do is tapping into the psychological piece. So that's a quick overview. An example um, of someone going through like the four stages I talked about, there was an individual who lost his leg, one of my patients. And when I, I run the amputee support group at the hospital I work at. So it's just a support group where individuals who have lost their legs can sort of meet, talk to each other, learn from each other. Um, so I met him at one of our support groups and he had just lost his leg probably 10 days prior to me meeting him. He was with his wife who was very supportive and he was just so reserved, so down. His body posture was he was in his wheelchair and just looking down, not interested at all about what was going on in the meeting. And he was completely apathetic. Um, so he had no interest in recovery and getting better and talking to anybody a couple of months later, I got the opportunity to work with him, an outpatient. He had just got his prosthesis, his, face, his fake leg, started learning how to use it, getting up and moving, getting out of his wheelchair, walking with the walker, then the cane. His whole demeanor was changing. He was getting more happy, essentially, and he was able to walk in and out of therapy with the cane. Then two or three months later, he came back to the support group. And he was talking to everybody. He was helping others who have, um, you know, who were just starting the process of going through and learning what life was like without their legs. And I couldn't get him to shut up during the meeting. So he was just <laughs> completely different person um, just two, three, four months later. And it was just really cool to see. And he's the first person, and I talked about him in my book that comes to mind, just going through the four steps. So it's super interesting, you know, so you are working with um, paraplegics and people who are suffering from, you know, these neurological damages. And, you know, you outline really the four things in your book, right? You, you outline the four things that people should have, you know, or I guess the four things that people, the, the mindset that people should have as they're going through this journey and as they're, you know, really trying to recover, you know, mentally, right? Yeah. The question is, what is the thing, you know, that really changed this man and that really changed most people, right, to shift their mindset from the, you know, um, apathy to um, really, you know, changing their lives and, you know, really trying to live a great life? Yeah, and I think, I don't believe I can, re I don't, I firmly believe, it might sound a little crazy, that we, you can't motivate someone. I think we all have it in us. Um, mm -hmm. So my job as a physical therapist and the psychological piece is like just trying to get people to see it. I don't think it's, I think I maybe will give them the tools to see that they're able and they're possible to achieve um, some of the goals they want to achieve. I don't think I can really motivate someone. I'm there just to sort of be what they want me to be. And it's, it's something that I've grown into and lean into a lot. Because when I first started my career, I was so caught up on like, you know, going through my evaluation with my patients, making sure I was doing my testing and making sure I was giving them the proper exercises. Um, I was very linear in my thought process when I first started my career. And it's taken me a couple of years. And I think the power of listening to people, the power of human connection. So I talk about three things also in part three of my book about yeah. three lessons specifically that my patients have taught me um, and that I, you know, um, carry with me in my daily mindset, but the power of human connection and just listening to people. And I feel like it's a lost art and being able to connect with people is so powerful. 
And I think when I'm able to do that, patients trust me more. They, I'm able to build a better rapport. But to answer your question, I think we all have it in us. It just, we just need the right tools, the right, if you think of like plants, the right watering to like get it to grow. So I think part of my job is just to get people to buy into and see that they're able to, you know, overcome obstacles and figure out their lives after such a traumatic event. That's really interesting. You know, (laughs) it's so funny because you are a physical therapist, you know, you work on Mm -hmm. the body, but it seems like a lot of, a lot of your job. And I think maybe you, you could disagree, but maybe the most important, most important aspect of your job is working on the mind. 100%. And that, that's why it was so two or three years into my career, I was feeling like burned out. I was so emotionally exhausted. Um, there's this term compassion fatigue that really hit me. And I, it was really, it was very exhausting. So like just, just writing things down psychologically helped me drastically um, get things out of my head. And yeah, people, I see two patients an hour and, you know, people are un, un, unloading on me. They're telling yeah. me their struggles with their family members. I feel so bad. People will cry in their sessions with me. And guess what? Once I'm done with those two patients, the very next hour, I have two patients coming right, right in right behind them. Yeah. So I never had a chance to really process things. So yeah, it's emotionally exhausting. But I think going back to my point is sometimes I just listen to my patients and my first visit with my patients is an evaluation. I used to think I needed to get through my testing, see what they can do, what they can't do. There are times now when I just talk to my patients and I don't get to any of the, of the objective testing because I really do believe building a connection with them is more important and helps in the long run in terms of their recovery and you know them trusting me more. So sometimes I'll talk to them for 45 minutes, an hour, just about what they're going through. And that has been really, really powerful. Um, and their recovery process as well. They're more engaged. They want to come to therapy. They don't cancel as much. They're more, you know, prone to stick to their home exercise program. So those little things are, are I think, speak volumes to how my patients um, value those things. But yeah, the, the emotional and psychological piece is paramount in their physical recovery as well. So that's a great question. So, you know, you are developing, you know, this is like, uh, uh, there, there's a great idea that people always develop good relationships with their barber. You know, like when people talk to their yeah. barber, it's 30 minutes of just be sitting there and there's nothing to do, nothing to talk about. So you just start talking to your barber, you know, and it's the same thing with physical therapy and the fact that you're going to be there for 45 minutes, you might as well just talk to the physical therapist because there's nothing else to do. Right. And you know, yeah, you're an interesting guy. So, you know, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully they like you a little bit more. So I think that's a good question, you know, so you have developed a relationship with these patients and really, you know, how have you helped them and also how have they helped you? Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I got into this profession wanting to help other people, right? but never in a million years would I think my patients would be helping me so much more than I would be helping them. They have helped me shift my perspective on, you know, trying to appreciate the small things, appreciate the small victories in our day-to-day struggles. Um, Be grateful for all the things that I do have. Uh, One of the ways I feed my happiness muscle is in my apartment here, when I leave every single morning, I have a, it's like a chalkboard where my keys 
um, go, it's like a key holder. Mm-hmm. Every single morning, it's just a saying on there, I am grateful for. And every single morning, I just write one thing down. So it sort of sets the tone for me for the day to shift my mindset into being grateful for all the small victories. I know how quickly in an instant life can change and it can happen to anybody. We can wake up, we can have a stroke, we can wake up, we can get in a car accident. I see it day in and day out. So just being appreciative of all the little things, my patients have really helped me with that. Um, And then just not taking anything for granted, you know, doing things that I want to do now in the moment versus waiting. Um, One of the books that I sort of mentioned in my, in, in my book is top five regrets of the dying. It was written by Bronnie Ware. And oftentimes we think things that make us happy, the pursuit of material things, the promotion at work are not the things that really make us happy. Oftentimes I think the things that make us happy are the things we sacrifice talking to other people, connecting with others, traveling. Um, those are the things that really make us truly happy. And those are the things I focus my energies on. So yes, I help my patients with their physical recovery and them talking to me and unloading and being able to get things out of their head. But my patients have helped me so much more that I truly believe and I feel like I'm helping them. That's so interesting. So why do you think yeah. that is? Why do you think, you know, and this gets back to the fact that you're dealing with people with, um, with extreme physical ailments, you know, why uh-huh. do you think it is that, you know, especially when we're talking about the, uh, the top five regrets of the dying, it's like, why do we separate so far from the person that we're meant to be? Like, why do we get so clouded in our vision that we could only realize it by the time that we're dying? Why can't like throughout our life, we actually become, you know, grateful and, um, and embrace the right mindset and, you know, really focus on the things that make us happy. Yeah. And I, the psychological piece is something that I really researched a lot. And one of the, the, I talk about the framework of happiness a lot in the book, in the beginning of the book. And there's work by a psychologist from Yale university. Her name is Dr. Lori Santos. And I took her course. Yep. Uh, so good. And she, yeah. the framework that she highlights about happiness is that we just are so, our minds, our brains are so wired to put our energies into the wrong things. And it's things that we don't even notice, but it's, it's the fact that we just are naturally day in and day out are putting our efforts, our, our minds, um, the pursuit of things that we think will make us happy into those wrong things. And that's why it sets us up for failure. We're constantly left with this feeling of, you know, not being satisfied and I'm guilty of it. Like I've always been driven by the final product. I, I always thought like soccer wise, just looking back, having, you know, good grades soccer wise, um, making the varsity team, graduating from high school, going to a good school, um, college, getting my degree, um, playing soccer in college. I was fortunate enough to do that. And then after Villanova, I went to PT school. I'm like, all right, I'm going to study really hard, get really good grades, get a great job. I'm like, all right, this is it. I'm going to be super happy when I graduate. And I got my job and it just never stopped. Even in my job, I was so driven by the final product and the results of moving up the clinical ladder, getting my promotions, and then being the manager. And then I just constantly was chasing this thing that I feel like I never was able to get a hold of. And I was like, what is going on? Um, so being, I think it sort of speaks to focusing on the 
you know, the present moment. I feel like we lose sight of that. We're constantly looking too far ahead or looking in the past on like regrets or mistakes that we made. So trying to live more in the moment, I think is a big thing too. Interesting. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm learning and appreciating that more as I get older. Yeah, there's actually, so you want to hear a great quote. This quote almost, almost inspires everything that I do. And it's by Tony yeah. Robbins. He says, success without fulfillment is the ultimate failure. <laughs> beautiful Powerful. it's beautiful right? and i th- i think it really speaks to you know the fact that we live most of our lives unconscious we live most of our lives being influenced by the external environment school pushes you to go a certain way your job pushes you to go a certain way and you never really sit back and ask yourself these are all the things that people want for me what do i want right like mm. what what really is going to make me happy and i think the fact that we um the fact that we live our lives really unaware of this, the fact that we live our lives just so focused on, yeah, like you said, goals, right? Like these, these goals of, you know, did you know that 47% of PhD students feel depression after they graduate? That's, it's nuts. And, and just a prime example of like the final, when you reach your goal, it's okay to have them. I think it's important that you have to have goals, but I think it's also important to appreciate the little victories along the way, because if you don't, nothing we ever accomplish will ever be enough. So you have to, you have to really appreciate and acknowledge the little victories because that's what life's all about. It's all about the journey. And one of the things I love traveling. And Mm -hmm. I think when you experience different cultures and different places i think it makes you live in the moment a lot more because there's so many you just don't know what's going to happen so it's it's making you focus on the present moment appreciate all the new things you're seeing and what's also nice about the fact that one of the things i love about traveling is like you can't compare i feel like we compare ourselves a lot to other people if i go visit italy or something i can't compare that my experience with someone else's like it's only my experience and it's something that i love to do and traveling is really something that I really need to do because it really helps me a recharge my batteries, but it's, it just helps me with my happiness. It's something that really helps me live in the moment and appreciate what's going on in that moment. Yeah. So, well, it's actually, it's hard. It's hard, yeah. but it's something well, that thing. we all can work on and get better with. Well, that's the thing. So Aristotle, um, he believed that humans, you know, should have a goal that they will never be able to pursue. They should live their lives pursuing something that, uh, that they will never achieve. And that's the thing that's going to keep them engaged their entire lives. Because once they achieve it, then, then you know, you, you experience these, these bouts of, you know, depression and you're like, what do I do now? And you're stuck with that sort of syndrome. So I do agree with you on the fact that, you know, traveling or, you know, more generally focusing on the present moment, you know, like really enjoying yep the fact that you are in the journey. The journey is what matters because once you reach the destination, it's not going to make you happy anyways. (laughs) Agreed. Agreed. And going to Aristotle and the whole concept of stoicism and and all that, like, I love that stuff. I think we've lost sight of that over the past, obviously, couple decades. Um, And I feel like we're sort of in a little renaissance, a stoic renaissance now and like trying to find meaning in life and, looking at those philosophies of like love and relationships and meaning. um, I feel like we lost sight of that, but in the midst of the pandemic, I feel like a lot of people are questioning that. And I think 
this is really a perfect time to be launching this book about happiness. Yeah. Um, oddly enough. So I, I feel like we've definitely lost sight of that. And I'm a big fan of stoicism and I do a lot of reading on them. And I, I think the messages of Aristotle and Plato and um, um, all those Stoics are just really powerful. And I think we are in the midst of trying to figure out a lot of the concepts that they discuss and the things that they stand for. So, well, let me ask you a question. So do you yeah. think, you know, I, I truly believe that this pandemic, you know, and maybe this might be, you know, I, I guess I, I won't call it a privilege because I've definitely worked at it, but I've had the, um, the luck of being able to embrace this mindset, you know, this uh, being exposed to the people who will help me with this mindset, you know, the mindset of the happiness perspective and to be able to look at it from a positive point of view, to look at life from a positive point of view. And I could happily say that coronavirus was a good thing. You know, like obviously people were suffering, people were suffering physical ailments, people died, but at the same time for all the people who, you know, had to be shut down for all the people who had to um, had to really, you know, change their lives and really had to reorient everything. They experienced a psychological awakening, right? Mm. They were left with a complete, almost nothing, right? You're left with zero. You have, you know, your, your, your work is going to be completely boring and you're not going to spend time on that. Your school, same thing, you know, there's going to be very little, um, you know, you're going to have a lot of downtime, a lot of time for yourself. And that's the time where, and this is my belief on it, coronavirus, you know, the, the lockdowns, all these things, they helped so many people because they, they awoke them, they woke mm. them up and they really allowed for them to, you know, really think about their lives in this downtime, in this, you know, reorganizing and be like, wait a second, I have not been living my life to the to the highest potential that i possibly could and i screw it i'm gonna do it but then at the same time i believe that you know a more a majority of the people because you know that's always how it is a majority of the people you know so there's two perspectives you know there's that perspective and a majority of the people are just gonna sit there and they're gonna be like you know 2020 was bad this was a this was just a waste of a year and all those things so i do believe that coronavirus was good for a lot of people but at the same time, um, it also it also caused a lot of suffering. Absolutely. And I, I think, like you said, there's going to be those people who look at this like, what a waste of a year. And, you know, there's, I can't believe this happened to me. And yeah, and I'm, I, people are getting, whether it's um, health wise, they're getting really impacted by this. Obviously, people are losing loved ones. And I mean, I see it every single day. I'm treating these patients as well who are coming off these ventilators and all the sequelae and impairments that these patients are dealing with after so I, it's it's real it's out there i know not to get political or anything but it's something that i see every single day and i've had to pivot in terms of how i treat my patients too like we've done a lot of telehealth um initially when this all first happened um we're not allowing individuals to come into their caregivers and loved ones to come into therapy anymore and psychologically that has affected my patients i have to walk my patients out to the parking lot a lot of the times now because um, and just to give my patients, family members an overview of how therapy went. So I've had to pivot a lot and the profession of PT in general, a lot of my colleagues um, have had to pivot a lot, but yes, it's been a challenge for everyone. But at the same time, I think how we frame what we're going through will dictate 
what we see and the lens at which we see. And I like to think of it of, I'm an iPhone guy. I have an iPhone. So like portrait mode on a camera, you go to take a portrait mode picture, you bring into focus what you want to focus on. Everything else in the background gets blurry. Um, so your, your image is really crystal clear in the portrait mode of what you're looking at. And I think that analogy is good to look at when we're looking at how we look at our daily obstacles, daily challenges that we all face. People are complaining that they didn't spend, have enough time to spend with their children because they're constantly working. Now they're home all the time. They're sick of being home with their kids. That's just an example, you know, that I, that I think of. This is a good opportunity to spend time with family, to rebuild our connections with other people. So it's not easy by any means. I know it's, it's been a huge pivot and shift that a lot of people have had to deal with. Um, so it's, it's been a struggle, but I think how we look at things and how we frame things will really dictate how we see the world around us. So what you're really talking about, and, you know, I just want to, that was, that was beautiful, you know, and <laughs> I think <laughs> what you're really talking about is finding meaning in suffering, you know, and mm -hmm. both of us, you know, really love this book. This book is actually um, my favorite book of all time. It's called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And what he talks about is um, he was unfortunate enough to be a Polish Jew in the 1940s, you know, like how, how awful is it to, to exist in, in that time? And, you know, suffered in Auschwitz, went to three different concentration camps and just, you know, suffered all the physical ailments you could possibly go through, went through the worst of it all. And, uh, one out of 28 people, uh, did not make it out of there or one out of 28 people did make it out of there, but he was, you know, he was able to not only have the mindset to be able to make it out, to be able to overcome the physical suffering, but at the same time, he was a psychologist who, um, mm -hmm. who ended up being doctor there and, you know, is essentially doing the role of Ferris here. You know, he, you know, just helping people, you know, just, He's, he was there to treat their physical ailments, but really what he noticed was that he could try to influence their mental, you know, their psychological aspect and trying to help them find meaning in the suffering. And I think um, his, yeah, his philosophy is all about, is all about that. And I definitely wanted yeah. to bring it back to you to ask you, how could people find meaning in their suffering? Not only suffering from, you know, neuro, uh, neuro, biological problems that you deal with, but just in general life, how could they deal with the suffering that they're going through right now? Yeah, it's a great, I love that book um, as well. And it's, it really um, has changed me a lot. And the, the, the talking points have been in that book. One of the things that he talks about, I don't even know if I'm saying it right, but I encourage people to check, check out the book first of all, but look up this whole concept that he talks about of um, logo therapy. Mm -hmm. um or like i don't i'm not sure how logo therapy yeah yeah and it speaks to what i mentioned a little bit earlier and why i think we all have it in us to sort of overcome things we just need someone to help us realize it so um to answer your question i think it's it's when you're going through something so traumatic it's easy to play the role of victim like why did this happen to me how can this happen to me? I did everything right. Um, but I think the number one thing that you have to do right away is to know that you're not alone. I think that's been the one of the most powerful things when people have a stroke, when people lose a loved one, when people 
break up in a relationship. They think that they're the only ones going through whatever they're going through. And I think once they're able to connect with other people um, and know that they are not the only ones going through whatever they're going through, it empowers them and gives them the realization, okay, I can do this. That's why I think when we see stories of people overcoming such traumatic injuries, events, and we hear other people's stories, that's my goal with this book is to hopefully help if it helps one person that's, you know, it was worth all the time in the world to do this. So I think once we realize that we're not the only ones going through what we're going through, that is the biggest thing that I think will help individuals start to pivot, shift their perspectives, and then try to get through whatever they're going through. It's work. It's intention. It has to be intentional. um, But there is a way to do it. And happiness definitely is something the science shows that we can work on those things, but it's not good enough to know that the science shows that we have to be able to intentionally go out and try to do it. Just like working out. We know eating bad things is bad for us. We know exercising is good for us. We know smoking is bad for us. But if you go smoke, if you eat crappy food, if you're drinking nonstop, um, so knowing something is half the battle. We have to be able to sort of put those, the science into practice and, um, you have to find what works for you. What works for you, what works for me is going to be different in terms of happiness and being true to who you are. Going back to your point a little bit before Nick is like being true to who you are and what makes you happy, not what other people want for you or what other people think will make you happy. I think is an important part of that too. It's so, it's so incredible. I mean, the things that you're talking about are so valuable, you know? So the first thing you talked about there was gratitude and the fact that, you know, yeah, Victor Frankl, went through Auschwitz, you know, I could, I could go through, I could break this bad habit or I could, you know, I could go through this ailment and um, you know, it, it really, it really gets you thinking, you know, the mind yeah. is the most important thing. You know, Wim, uh, Wim Hof is, uh, is he is, he's known for his Wim Hof method. And, you know, I, I think he's just so funny because he goes swimming shirtless in the Arctic, you know, <laughs> like crazy crazy like <laughs> sub zero temperatures and he just goes swimming you know and um most people most people don't even reach that level because they're always saying you know i don't i don't understand i can't go through this you know this is impossible whatever but if you if you see these people you know if you see all these incredible people who have overcome all these all these problems with their body you could really see how valuable the mind is um Another thing you talked about, which I really loved, is um, that knowing does not mean doing. And I think I think mm-hmm. that's what makes your book so valuable. You know, <laughs> it's crazy because when uh, actually Lori, Lori, Dr. Lori Santos of Yale, I highly suggest people take her course. By the way, online yeah, course, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, free, incredible. Um, I could I could link it actually right here. Let me get that uh down it's yes. have a and she has a have you have you listened to her podcast it's really really good i have it's the happiness lab right the happiness lab yeah yeah i'm linking all that here because it is so valuable but at the, at the yes. same time i do think um you know she she the first thing that she talks about is known as the gi joe fallacy and uh for a little background gi joe is was a you know tv show um the gi joe show was a tv show in the 1980s and at the end of the show you know the whole thing was he's a military guy and he's supposed to be a role model he's supposed to be a hero for kids and it's all animated you're watching this movie uh this tv show and every week they have the end ending scene which says you know a kid tries to cross the street and um 
and G.I. Joe pulls him back, you know, because, you know, uh, the cars are still going and he didn't look both ways. And then G.I. Joe looks at him and says, make sure you look both ways before you cross the street. And then, uh, and then the little kid always says, now I know, and knowing is half the battle. <laughs> and, and it's, it's so true. Yeah. Well, actually, so, uh, Dr. Lori Santos sort of, you know, um, pick that apart a little bit because she actually found that the GI Joe, you know, knowing is half the battle is actually somewhat wrong in the fact that knowing is almost like 10% of the battle. Knowing mm. and action are two completely different things. You know, did you know that 70% of current smokers want to quit, but can't it's incredible. And it's like, why it's is it? Yeah, exactly. Like they know exactly what is bad for them. It's not like they're being yep. tricked. It's not like they even, you know, want it. It's that they is that they know but they just can't do. And I think the happiness perspective, your book, is so incredible because it really shows, you know, these are the things that you can do. Here is the emotional things. It's not like, you know, maybe you should quit smoking, maybe you should start working out. It's like, no, here's how you could change your mindset. Here's how you could really change what is going on inside of you, your emotions, so that you could actually start doing. Yeah. And and I think it's important to like be kind to yourself too as you try something new, as you try to sort of change your bad habits or whatever, because I feel like sometimes we get into this pattern of like, okay, I'm going to do something just like New Year's resolutions. I'm going to get into the gym. I'm going to, I'm going to, that's a prime example. And then a month or two later, people fall off and they're just January sort of. January 12th. <laughs> January 12th is the average. Is it, people give up and they sort of get down on themselves. And I think it's important to be kind to yourself too. And that's something I'm learning. Um, I don't have it all together. It's something that I'm constantly intentional about and trying yeah. to figure out and practice. And like I said before, having a moment of weakness is okay, but don't let it turn into a mindset. Um, so having those moments, be kind to yourself and see what works for you. Um, it's not, what, like I said before, what, what works for me, what makes me happy, what drives me is going to be different than what works for you, Nick. So it's going to be... Yeah you know, person to person, very subjective, but the science shows that it's possible to change. We just have to figure out ways to do that. Well, that's, that's the thing that's so interesting because you deal with all these people who are suffering from these crazy ailments. And I love this idea. Moments of weakness are okay, but don't make it a mindset. And, and I think that's the thing, you know, we, when we all suffer, you know, when we go through whatever daily suffering or monthly mm -hmm. suffering or, or long depression spouts, whatever it is, or just a negative mindset in general, we are always thinking thoughts that we don't want to be thinking. Two thirds of our thoughts that we think every day are negative on average. And it's crazy. When you talk about shame, shame is essentially taking those thoughts right? Saying, I shouldn't be thinking those thoughts and throwing it into a closet, right? Your mental closet, you know? Mm -hmm. And then the, the thing is, you're never changing it, right? Like, you, you know, you throw it into a closet, but then we, we know it's just going to come right back up. There, yep. So you keep throwing it into a closet, keep throwing it into a closet, but you know, eventually that closet's going to be overfilled, isn't it? And yep. you're going to reach the point where, um, you are just, you know, that closet is overstuffed. You can't close it anymore. And you have suppressed your emotions for so long that it's just that, um, that you, you suffer an outburst, right? That you have yeah. some way of that 
that idea really slipping out. And this, this idea of moments of weakness really says, you know, that you should confront it, right? Instead of, instead of pushing those feelings away, really accept those feelings, yes. really, you know, take them in and really understand that they are a part of you and that you shouldn't put them away. 100%. You have to acknowledge those things because if we just sweep it under the rug, if you just put it in your closet, guess what? Soon enough, when you open that door, all that stuff is going to pile up on you. You're going to feel like you can't breathe. You're going to feel like panic attacks are a real thing. That's stress induced. The way we think, our emotional, the mind part of it, and the connection to the body is real. The science is out there. So the, the emotional piece, the mental part of it can manifest physically. So that's why mental health has been at the forefront for the past 10, 15, 20 years um, and has gained a lot of momentum. So you can't just hide those things. And it's something that I did early in my career and it's something I'm still working on, just writing things down, journaling. I used to think that was nuts. I used to think like <laughs> that was absolutely crazy, um, but it really does help me. It, it just unclutters all that mental stuff in my mental closet and it helps me sort of open up space for... Um, some of the things that I really want to be focusing on. And um, yeah, it's a pow powerful, powerful tool. And it's something so simple that we can all try to do. Yeah, well, actually, so uh, it's crazy. I, I really uh, enjoyed this, uh, this conversation, this deep, deep conversation. Let's get into a little bit of the concrete, because obviously, a lot yes. of this is abstract. What is your morning routine? You talked about it a little bit, you know, you use gratitude in the morning. What is your morning routine? And how do you use it to really set up your day? Yeah, so the first thing I typically do, um, I love running. I um, something that I just going back to what makes me happy. It's the one time of the day where I feel like I'm not doing 500 things. I'm not multitasking. So I typically will run in the morning, but before I even do that, I usually wake up, I have a, a book. It's like a 15 minute um, prayer slash mindfulness book that I, that I do. It's one, it's, there's a 365 different ones, one for every day mm -hmm. of the year. Um, so 15 to 20 minutes every single morning. Um, I will just wake up. First thing I do is make my bed, which sounds silly, but just get in the habit of doing that. Um, something I always do. I will come downstairs um, into my little kitchen here. I will read and meditate for 10 to 15 minutes. It's not really meditation. It's really just reading. Um, and if, if you're religious, that's great. I just do a little bit of a prayer too. Um, nothing crazy, just waking, waking up and being grateful and thankful for everything that I have. And I, again, when I try every morning before I leave, that's something else I do is write the one thing I'm grateful for. So that's the first 10, 15 minutes. I avoid, I always avoid picking up my phone. That's the first thing um, I feel like took me some time in practice, but I used to be in the habit of waking up, checking my phone, um, looking at social media. I avoid that for the first 20, 15 to 20 minutes. So I'll do that. And then I'll have my espresso, which is very important to me, have a little bit of a coffee. <laughs> and then I will shower, um, I'll go for my run, shower. And then usually 45 minutes to an hour is what I typically allot to my morning before I even get out the door to go to work. Um, and then when I, once I leave to go to work, I see what I wrote on the chalkboard in the morning. I'll erase it. Again, that just gets my mind thinking about things I'm grateful for. When I come home, I write one thing I'm grateful for again at the end of the day. So it's a good way, just a reminder, when I, as soon as I leave and when I come home, I'm able to sort of look at that chalkboard and just put my minds, whether 
I hit traffic on the way home or something, something so small that threw me off. It just recalibrates my mindset for the rest of the day when I get home too. So that's pretty much my, my morning routine and um, what I try to do on a daily basis. So what effect does, um, first of all, you do a lot of mindfulness training, yeah. but what also, what effect does, you know, I had Eric LeGrand on my podcast and he spoke a lot about that. You know, he said, God, God is just so powerful. Like it has such an influence. And I think, you know, we live in such a, you know, you're a doctor who likes God. It's like, how crazy is that idea? But at the same time, it's like, you know, I think, uh, I think we all understand that science and objectivity is not going to be the way that brings fulfillment, right? Like it's just, it's not going to get us there completely. So I must ask as a doctor, as a physical therapist, what is it that, um, that attracts you to God? And at the same time, how much does it help you? Yeah. Um, and I, I never impose, you know, obviously my religion or my, even like when you think about stoicism too, like it's, something greater than yourself and i think mm -hmm. i whether it's god whether it's some sort of other religion or um you know i just feel like it helps me stay grounded in my day-to-day -day. and being able to recognize and just be mindful of knowing it's not about me and it for me it's god that really i lean into a lot and try to build my relationship with him and um it doesn't have to be him but just being mindful and being appreciative and knowing that it's i'm part of something bigger than yeah. ferris it's not about me and um i think when you do that it helps you realize how big the world is as well and like we're all human and it's so much more than just any one person the more we're able to help other people the more i try to help other people the more i'm able to build those connections with other people it just gives me a little bit of a perspective to know that it's much bigger than myself. That's the biggest yeah. thing. And it just that, and it keeps me grounded to know that, you know, it's really just so much bigger than myself. And if uh, the only thing I could do is try to bring a little bit of um, kindness to humanity, kindness is free. And that's something that I, I really try to do on a daily basis. So it's so interesting. It seems like you're so, uh, most of the people that I have on my podcast so far, I've had, uh, you're my 21st episode. Uh, mm -hmm. so it's crazy that most of our life goals, I must say are so similar. They like, they, we look at it from so many different perspectives, but what your life goal really is. And I don't, I don't know if, um, I, I'm framing this from a psychological, a psychological perspective, your life goal, as well as mine is that I desire to make people conscious right? Hmm. To make people uh, realize, you know, what is it that's best for me? And at the same time, what is it that everyone wants for me? And how can I actually focus on myself? And you do that with your physical therapy patients, the people who have suffered immensely. And at the same time, you try to do it with yourself. And I find that it's really powerful to see that you are, you are doing the same thing as me, just in a completely different uh, method of getting there. And that's the beauty of it, right? Like, it doesn't have to be one cookie cutter recipe. Everyone has their own journey. Everyone has their own style of doing things. Everyone has their own way of um, different paths that they're going to take. But I think that's a valuable lesson in itself to know that just because I'm doing it one way, doesn't mean you have to do it that way and vice versa. When you look on social media, you see someone's um, you know, posts and how they're living their life. 
doesn't mean that's how you, you have to live your life. There's more than one path to get to the final destination. When you think about final destination, it's, it varies from person to person too. You know, what drives me is not going to be the same for you, Nick. So um, that's why the psychological piece, I think reflection is something I talk about in my book too. I haven't really appreciated my psychology degree as much in the past two or three years, four years as I did, you know, versus when I first started my career. And if we just look back and reflect on all the experiences that we have been through to this very day, I truly believe that they set us up for what we have already gone through, where we're at, and then sort of prepare us for the next steps too. Reflection is huge and something I practice a lot um, and something that could be very powerful because it helps us look at the things that we have gone through, learn from those things, and be appreciative for everything we have and where we are currently at in the moment. Again, speaking to staying in the process of what we're trying to do in our lives. Yeah, exactly. Speaking about morning routines, actually, you know, speaking of the process, I, every morning I write in my journal and I purposefully called my journal. I don't call it journal. I call it the lab. Nice. I call it the lab. And the whole thing is, you know, I, I am in my personal laboratory working on myself, you know, and the whole purpose of a lab is to keep testing, keep testing, keep making changes, keep trying to figure out, you know, maybe this product didn't work. Maybe this iteration of whatever product didn't work, but eventually you got to keep testing, see what works. And then we're eventually going to get there. And I think, you know, how is it possible to improve on yourself if you're not reflecting? Like, mm. right. Like, you know, you, you know, uh, you want to, you want to hear a funny thing. Actually, I got uh, Colin yeah. Robertson on my podcast and he talked about this in his book, uh, the will of heroes podcast number 18. Um, he said that there was a study where they asked people to go and work out. Right. And they, uh, they asked these students, Hey, go and work out. Um, write down how many hours you think you're going to work out this week. And I don't have the exact numbers, but let's say they said six hours, right? They said, okay, this week I'm going to work out for six. No, it was the month. It was the month. So for the month they said they were going to work out. I think it was, um, we'll say 20 hours. How about that? Okay. And then uh, some of them hit it, you know, but very, very few of them hit it. You know, uh, I think these were people that didn't work out uh, often. Right. Right. So then they brought them in the next month and you know, these, these people found out, okay, I got six hours. I think it was six hours was the average. And they said, write your goals for the next month. This was what the researchers said. The goals on average, when they were 20, the first time the students average saying 20 hours, they bumped it up to 25. Why? Why? Oh my goodness. <laughs> What, what flaw in our human psychology is telling you, you worked out six, six hours this month and you wanted to hit 20 instead of maybe lowering your goals yeah. to, to hit 15 or maybe 10, we decide to go to 25. But I noticed that I did this my entire life. I set goals for my days. I set goals for my weeks, my months. And whenever I didn't hit it, I said, tomorrow. I didn't do it today, but tomorrow is going to be the day where everything changes. And it's such a flawed mentality. But at the same time, we, we don't sit here and reflect in that yeah, way. Yeah. And I think that's why it has to be small changes. It's not when people think change, they think immediately like it has to be this huge shift and change in their lifestyle. 
um, for me, running is huge and like running a marathon is a perfect example. It's a marathon, not a sprint. So you can't just go out and run a marathon. It takes, you have to be able to run, you know, half a mile, a quarter of a mile and then build off of that. So the small, it doesn't have to be a crazy change. Even if you write one sentence a day, you don't have to journal and people, when people, I feel like when people hear the word journaling, they have to write like a page or two pages or three pages, a simple even like a simple thank you note telling someone there's studies that show like when you write a thank you note the impact that it has on on your brain it sort of elicits and the pathways that light up on functional mris um elicits and activates parts of the brain that help release certain neural transmitters that have lasting impacts not just for that day or that week that you wrote the thank you note like little tiny things and you build on it it's not a one-time thing that you do and I think we we're always in search of like the quick fix. Like I love when, when I see like things on social media or like the news, like um, five things, you know, to get happier, like t- 10 minutes to get happier. Yes. I think that's true, but it's not just those 10 minutes. It has to be 10 minutes every single day and then 12 minutes and then 15 minutes. So it's, it's a process. It's a process. And that's the thing. I mean, that's exactly what you're talking about. Rule four of the happiness perspective is focus on the process versus the product. And I noticed this in my own life, you know, obviously I'm coming out with the book this year and it's about breaking bad habits. And I noticed that my entire life, I was so good at breaking bad habits. I was never good at building new ones. And I think we all struggle with that, you know, got to get to the gym, got to do all these things, got to blah, 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 you know? And, um, and I found that, um, I, my whole life, whenever I said I was going to go to the gym, I would go to the gym, I would get motivated one month, two months, I would push through it and then I would die. But the problem was that I would wake up um, I want to get up at 532. So I was a little bit crazy, but you know, I think this is applicable to everybody. <laughs> Go five minutes, drive to the gym, one hour workout at the gym, five minutes, drive back, then shower, then get ready. You know, it's, it's, it's really a one and a half hour, two hour process, even yes. if you're doing it later in the day. And that's the thing we're trying to balance. We're trying to have an intense workout. We have this idea of what an intense workout is, but really our problem is not the intensity our problem is the consistency agreed so every day i decided you know i was actually i learned it from this podcast one of the people came on and said no consistency is the problem and it really woke me up so i woke up every day now i just do a four minute workout four minute workout i do i do a set of push-ups one set of push-ups i do as many push-ups as i possibly can i hang from my pull-up bar i don't even do pull-ups i just hang from the pull-up bar because i um it's supposed to be very good for your posture and it is, um, good, it is. speaking right. from, from PT is very good. Yeah. Stretch. Really? Your posture. <laughs> oh, that's, I, I'm happy. I'm, <laughs> I'm happy that that pleased the physical therapist, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, I, I do it for four minutes a day and that's the thing. I, I made it a habit. So now I've done it for the last hundred days. Awesome. And after my 60th day, I added on another one. So I added on after I did the hangs and the push-ups. Now I do one extra workout, whichever one I decide to choose. Awesome. And hopefully, you know, the process goes in and over the years that could end up building up to getting the consistency as well as the intensity. But the problem really is the consistency and not the intensity. Agreed. We, it compounds. You think about financially, like why do people invest in 401ks? It's not to be able to have, 
retirement when they're 30. That would be nice. Don't get me wrong. But you're putting small things, small contributions into your retirement. So then 30, 40, 50 years later, you can now capitalize on those um, because you were consistent, you were diligent over the past 30 years, 40 years um, to enjoy those things later in life. Um, so yeah, again, I keep harping on it, but it has to be a consistent, intentional effort on a daily basis. You can't get to, and unfortunately with happiness, there's no, you know, at, at work now we scan everyone's temperature. You can't scan someone's forehead and say, okay, you're a 10 out of 10 on happiness. There's no <laughs> thermometer for happiness. It's very subjective. Um, and my goal in my personal life and something I try to do is try to get to as close as 10 as possible. It goes up and down when I travel, it might jump to a nine or 10. When I come back, I'm working for like three months, four months. Um, it might dip down to like a six or seven, but I am trying, my goal is to try to get as consistently as close to 10 as possible. Um, so, um, it just helps me on my daily mindset on a daily basis. And yeah. again, it's going to be up and down. It's not going to be, I'm not going to get a, a promotion. I'm not going to win the lottery, um, <laughs> win $20 million and then, okay, I'm a 10 out of 10 for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, in fact, there's studies that show when people do win the lottery, their happiness goes down months, <laughs> even years later. So um, it's, it's hard. It's not easy, but it's a process and something that we consistently have to work on. So Tony Robbins uh, has a great quote, and this is his um, goal for us. You know, he says that we should live in quote a beautiful state. The goal of the goal of our daily lives is to live in a state where we are just mentally, you know, imagine we are con yeah, like exactly what you're saying. We're constantly at an eight. We're constantly at a nine, and then then we have those moments, right? Those memorable moments, those amazing moments that put you up to an eleven, put you up to a twelve. You know, but yep. Most of the time, we're sitting at that constant, beautiful state. So let me ask you, and this is uh, probably the final question. What is it that we can do to put us in that beautiful state? Um, I think it goes back to something I alluded to earlier. Um, being true to who you are and what makes you happy. And my definition of happiness has varied as i gone through this. And I tried to make it as simple as possible. And um my current definition of happiness and it's changed over the past year is just to follow your smile. So if that means to travel for me, to run for me, that those are things that make me happy. So um, following your smile, you have to be true to who you are, first of all, and follow things that make you happy. If you like to draw, if you like to be artistic then do those things more consistently with the one caveat, I would say, um, the power of human connection and, you know, trying to build relationships is something that I try to do and take pride in my ability to connect with my patients, my ability to connect with people. And I go into a story in my book about there was a friend of mine who teaches Italian and one of his friends who I sort of befriended, he had just moved here from Italy and we were talking and I asked him like, what are the, what are the, what do you miss most about being in Italy versus being here? And it was a, I thought he was going to say the food or the wine or something. He said the moment of the coffee in Italy, you go to a cafe four or five times a day. You have a little espresso, that moment of the coffee where you're and oftentimes you're doing it with a friend, that moment where you're connecting with someone for those four, five, six, seven minutes, 
saying hello, connecting with them, seeing how they're doing. I think the connection um, with other people is something that is the foundation for happiness individually, but more collectively as a society and humanity. I think we need to connect more with other people. And it's something that I pride myself deeply in. And I think it's rooted in the way I was brought up with my family and my parents and the way my dad treated his customers in his profession. So um, I think human connection, following your smile and being true to who you are are the most important things um, to try to stay consistently happy and flex your happiness muscle with a little bit more strength and uh, more consistently. Wow. So you can learn a lot more about his philosophy and (laughs) amazing philosophy in his book, The Happiness Perspective, which is coming out, first of all, when? December 7th is the official publication date, uh, tentative, I should say, but that week of December 7th. Um, And then if you want to just connect with me on Instagram. Um, and then I also am today, I'm actually working updating my website. I do have a website. If you just yeah. go to the www.thehappinessperspective.com, um, all my information will be on there and it's something I'm working on as well. So, but my Instagram is Faris, just my first name, 2986 is the handle. So um, those are probably the best ways to connect with me. And then to close it out, give for the people who have watched this whole podcast, Give, uh, for Ferris Ricori, give people a reason. Explain to them why they should buy your book and dig deeper into the happiness perspective. Yeah, I think the number one reason um, and my goal with the book is to make people realize that happiness is in our control more than we think. It's not about the life, the hand that life deals us. I see it every single day. The happiest people are the ones who are able to sort of dig in and dive into, you know, what makes them happy, being true to who they are, no matter how big or small the obstacles we face, to eventually being able to flex their happiness muscle more consistently and live a more fulfilling and purposeful life. So check it out. I would love for you guys to, you know, if you have any questions or anything, I'll be more than happy to answer. Um, But yeah, that's sort of the overall goal of my book. And I hope it helps people in their journeys in life. All right. Awesome. And the day that he publishes, that will be in the link of this video. But until then, uh, hit him up on either his Instagram, uh, which will also be down below, and also his website. Ferris Corey, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Nick. I appreciate you having me on and stay safe.